I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by Montag Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to the series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Montag Manufacturing is your fertilizing equipment specialist, offering dry, liquid, and complete fertilizer systems as well as auto steer carts. Montag's precision fertilizer placement solutions will reduce your rate, increase your yield, and assist your stewardship goals. Visit them at montagmfg.com. That's M-O-N-T-A-G-M-F-G.com. With a special emphasis on high-yield production systems, Harold Reitz made a career helping farmers make better informed crop management decisions while protecting natural resources. After years of working for Purdue University, the Potash and Phosphate Institute, and the Foundation for Agronomic Research, he launched Reitz Agronomics, a consulting firm focused on the integration of soil management, pest management, genetics, and a variety of technologies designed to optimize production and strive for maximum economic yield. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, Frank Lesseter talks with REITs about his approach to fertilizer management, including the four R's, right source, right rate, right place, and right time, as well as other practices that underscore success in a no-till system. They talk about why improving drainage is one of the easiest ways to boost yields, how aerial imaging can help farmers understand the impacts of their practices, the carbon sequestered by a corn crop, why he thinks it may be better to focus on improving high-performing fields rather than underperforming ones, and more. So I got my BS at Illinois, my master's and PhD from Purdue. Okay, and then what'd you do when you were out of school? Well, I stayed on the Purdue staff for uh, 12 years. I was a state extension specialist in corn production and worked uh, on uh, technology. I, I had a project on crop forecasting where we developed a crop forecast every week during the growing season for corn and soybeans. Sure. For each oh. county in the U.S. Oh, wow. So, and then you left there and went to the uh, PPI? Yeah, I went to the Potash and Phosphate Institute in 1982. I was Midwest director. That's when I moved to Illinois. I had uh, all various states during that time, always in Illinois, but the surrounding states uh, added to that different times over the years. And, and I eventually became the uh, president of the Foundation for Agronomic Research. Right. And they finance agronomy projects around the world? Yes. So when you got into agronomy, got to work, no-till was catching on. So what did you find out that no-tillers needed to do different with fertility? Yeah, well, there were a few things. Uh, you needed to be careful on soil testing because you weren't uh, working at the nutrients in as much. You uh, you needed to be a little careful and maybe take a, a shallow soil sample every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Not as not as many as your regular samples, but uh, enough to kind of keep track of it. So we'd recommended uh, a two-inch sample, just kind of get a feel for the top layers if there's any stratification going on. 
So when somebody did a two-inch uh, sample, would they also take one deeper or not? Yeah, you'd take one deeper at the same time. So okay, so but you would Just you would recommend uh, testing them separately or mixing them together? No, you'd have to test them separately. Yeah. Okay. Well, I know some no-tillers tend to mix them together, so that won't be as uh, accurate of what they got. Yeah, now, I what, don't think I'd uh, recommend that. <laughs> I don't think so. All right. So, what did you learn from these two-inch samples? Well, usually it was uh, if it was probably more important for pH and for uh, phosphorus than anything else, because mm -hmm. nitrogen tends to leach down, and potash is uh, better at leaching down too uh, with the water, but phosphorus doesn't move very much. That's what we'd mostly be concerned about if you had a solid on phosphate. So, did you find uh, no-tills got more earthworms? Did you find that some of these nutrients would go down these earthworm holes or to the roots or, or not? Yeah, yeah, you'd have some of that. Mm -hmm. What else did early on find that no-tillers had to do a better job of? You know, as we got into uh, a variation of no-till was strip-till. Sure, and they're. You had to be careful where you sampled and kind of get an idea that uh, you weren't sampling right in the track or anything. So, so how would you recommend taking uh, samples with a grower doing strip-till? Well, I think you'd have to maybe do an angle uh, across the field. And as long as you did them at random, you'd probably get a, a reasonable feel of it. And I never thought that was a big problem. Yeah. You mentioned phosphorus, and phosphorus is... A problem in some areas with runoff, like Lake Erie or right, Chesapeake yeah. Bay. Yeah, and that's the one problem. If you have, uh, you know, you have a concentration of phosphates in a surface, then you increase the amount of potential runoff. But you're when you're no-till, you have enough residue on top to probably out counterbalance that. So, sure, right. uh, just one of the things you need to watch for. Well, one of the things that's come up in Lake Erie recently is they've had these algae blooms. They're blaming it on phosphorus, and their right, actually, yeah. National Geographic actually blames it on no-till, yet in that watershed, only about 15% of the farmland is actually no-tilled. So yeah, I don't know. Problems. That's, that's interesting because that's the area where no-till probably caught on the best. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you had worked with some high-yield people like Herman... Uh, I mean, Warsaw, yeah. yeah. And Childs. And, uh, right. Well, the guy that's got the highest yields out in Virginia. Uh, oh, David Hula. David Hula, uh, yeah. Been out to his farm several times, a couple of times. And yeah. I like him. He's a good guy. <laughs> yeah. We've had him talk at a couple of our conferences, and I've been there. There's a lot of history down there where he is along yeah. the James River. He switched his corn program to strip till in the last couple of years. Yeah. He's a good uh, good analyst. He really look, takes a look at everything. So. so what do you think has really made him tick and get these high yields? I think he pays attention to details. Mm -hmm. That was Herman's secret, too. You know, he was always out there looking at the field. So when these uh, guys got these high yields and then they started planting higher populations and together, that really got them higher yields in a lot of instances, right? Yeah. Are we going to see corn yields continue to, and soybean yields continue to go up? Oh, I think so. I don't think we're anywhere at the limit yet. What would you think the limit is? We know that we can grow 500 bushels of corn. So Right, right. So one one of the things that you were really big on was the four R's. Can you go through those? And They seem to have really caught on. We're still doing them today, yeah. right? Walk yeah, us through them. Yeah. 
Well, <laughs> hadn't thought about that for a while. That's <laughs> well, you would have the right source. So what does that really mean to the farmer? There's different options you can go to for most of our nutrients, and some are easier to work with to get the to get the material that gets into the plant faster. Mm-hmm. So you kind of look at your whole system and use one that fits the best. All right. Well, we got no-tillers using all of them. Yeah. And uh, I like to think of it as a system. It's just putting all the pieces together mm-hmm. and looking at all the details. So how about nitrogen stabilizers? Yeah, I would recommend those in most cases. And are we getting away from fall fertilization or, or staying the same or what? Oh, I think uh, fall is a good time for fertilization. Nitrogen, I'm a little nervous about it because your chances of leaching, but uh, I'd put some of it on in the fall if you needed a major increase in what you're using. But uh, P and K, in most cases, just as well to put it on in the fall as you would be in the spring. So you kind of work it into your system and so make sure you get it on. Right. I like to see a guy build a fertility up so he is not as concerned about when you put it on or what you put on as long as you're maintaining it. Sure, right. And that gives you more flexibility and more options mm-hmm. so that when the weather changes, which every year you've got a, a weather program to deal with, and if you've got your fertility in good shape and maintain it there, then you have more flexibility in what you put on, when you put it on, and even whether you put it on. Right. In most cases, I'd like to think if you're even if you don't put any on this year, that you can still get by if you got your fertility built yeah. to where it should be. Right. These no-tillers putting this on in the fall, do they, they need to somehow get it in the ground or just spread it on the surface? Well, that gives you flexibility, especially if you're no-tilling. You can generally, it's in most cases, if you got a lot of slope and a lot of potential runoff, you've got to be, be careful there. But in general, it it's less important to work it in if you put it on in the fall. You've got time for natural movement right. with the water. Well, and then we're seeing more no-tillers use cover crops, so that will help get it right. in the ground. Yeah, then, cover crops helps get it down too. So yeah, it just uh, it opens up some options for you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the cover, cover crops is important with no-till. The other thing these strip tillers have been doing is building fall berms, and they've been putting lots of phosphorus and potassium in those berms and in the fall. So, okay, the next one would be the right rates. How do you decide that? Strictly on soil tests or? Yeah, that's the main thing. So So no-tillers, do they have to factor in soil type or or management system or residue? Well, you always have to consider those things, but, uh, you know, maybe make adjustments if necessary. Right. Is it pretty important that uh, people do their own on-farm research plots? I always like that. I think everybody ought to have a research plot on their farm. Yeah, you ought to try something new every year. That's right. So the next thing up would be the right place, getting the fertilizer where it needs to be, whether it's a band or broadcast, get to the roots. Is this any different with no-till, with the shallow surface problems? At no-till, you tend to have uh, more shallow rooting that's always a factor, but as we talked earlier, the nutrients tend to be more shallow too, so that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's where soil type comes into play. If it's uh, more of a clay soil, it's not going to 
the nutrients won't move as much and the roots won't move either as much as they do in a sandy soil. So, mm-hmm. right. But water moves better. So, <laughs> so the right time, what was your recommendations on putting it all ahead of the crop with the planter side dressing split applications? What? Yeah, I think the, the main thing is to have the nutrients there when the crop needs it. So I tend to, to like the earlier applications, but uh, there's, good reasons for delaying it and the weather conditions are a big factor in deciding that. We'll rejoin Frank Lesseter and Harold Reitz in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Montech Manufacturing, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Montech Manufacturing is your fertilizing equipment specialist, offering dry, liquid, and complete fertilizer systems as well as auto-steer carts Montag's precision fertilizer placement solutions will reduce your rate, increase your yield, and assist your stewardship goals. Visit them at montagmfg.com. That's M-O-N-T-A-G-M-F-G.com. Before we get back to the conversation, here's Frank Lasseter with a little-known no-till farmer fact. It's been quite a while since anybody came up with a figure as to how many acres of no-till we have around the world. And then hopefully there's going to be a new uh, study done within the next couple of years. But if you take the five top countries in the world who are no-tilling, you come up with uh, 75% of the world's no-till acres are in those five countries. There's a total of about 388 million acres of no-till in the world today. Now, this was 2013 data. That's way out of date, but this is the best there is. The United States was on top at that time with about 88 million. And we know today there's about maybe 110 million. Second at that time was Brazil with 79 million acres, followed by Argentina with 49 million acres, and Canada with 33 million acres, and then Australia with 44 million acres. So those five countries made up 75% of all the no-till acreage in the world. Hopefully we're going to get a new survey one of these days. And now we'll get back to the conversation as Frank Lesseter and Harold Reitz talk about banding versus broadcasting nutrients. So with uh, no-till, now we've got precision, we got GPS. What about placement, about banding, broadcast? What do you think? Oh, uh, again, I like to see the soil test built up so that it really doesn't matter banding is important if you've got a a low soil test, then banding helps to get it. If you bend near the row, that helps to get it to the plant. Right. But if you've right. got the soil test built up the way it should be, then it doesn't really matter. Broadcast is just as good as banding. So. Well, one of the things that I found interesting over the years with strip till is strip till seems to have picked up a number of the ideas that the ridge tillers used. I mean, they were right, yeah. controlled traffic, no avoid yeah. compaction, deep banding. Banding and, uh, the fertility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember the ridge tillers used to get mad at the no-tillers who bad, because they bad-mouth ridge till, and now what the hell we're doing? We're doing strip yeah, till, but, which is really ridge till almost. Yeah. One of the things that comes up is whether each field is profitable and what you got to do different uh, you know, for a long time, we would have management ideas that fit the whole farm. Now we're down the fields or in variable rate within fields. What's happening in this area? Yeah. I was just reading an article about Intellinair, mm-hmm. and they've got a system now that uh, 
they are able to get uh, specific aerial satellite imagery and satellite and airplane mostly is what they use. Airplane imagery that sure. uh, can uh, follow fertility and uh, tillage systems mm-hmm. and the impact that it has. It's really interesting what they're doing, adding another piece of information that can help us show the variability in the field. Right. So what emphasis do you put on yield maps? A farmer looks at his yield maps and his fertility from the previous year. Is he going to just go with whatever that says, or has he got to be more general? Well, I, yeah, it's, a, it's certainly a tool, but I, I like yield maps. And as long as you uh, seriously interpret them and look at in comparison to other maps that you have, uh, they can help guide what you're Especially if you're doing on-farm research, that's certainly helpful in uh, determining what the impact is of what you've done. If you've got good maps of your practices, then you map can match that up with the yield maps. I think it's a good deal. For uh, farmers who are renting land, how does a long-term fertility fit into this versus short-term? I mean, they don't want to spend money on fertility if they don't keep farming the same ground three years from now. Well, that's right. But make sure that if you make that decision, are you realistic about it? Yeah, they may be on a year-to-year lease, but uh, I'm renting my land out on a year-to-year lease, but same guy's been farming it for the last 25 years. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. so um, do you have any uh, demands that he follow on what he does, tillage or fertility or whatever? I try to get him to use good practices. I can't say that he does all the time. He's got his own mind, too. So. Sure, right. And so, he's got to pay for it. So, Right. You look at the general population, and less than 10% of farmers are using cover crops. But right. um, among our no-tillers, it's about 80%. How can farmers measure the fertility they can get off cover crops, or what do they do? Well, again, their main thing is soil testing and you know, you got to look at what what is the impact on yield. Yeah. If it's going to help yield, then it's going to be worthwhile. You got to look at the cost of doing it. Right. But there's certainly good. Uh, we're going to be under more and more pressure for uh, climate change management. So one of the things I wonder about, and I see all the analysis of the climate change impact and the effect that crops have on it. They never take into account how much sequestration of carbon there is in a 300 bushel corn crop right i think that's something that needs to be in the in the calculations and and analysis and uh, you know we we talk about destroying the rainforest that destroys the amount of carbon dioxide that's trapped but the same thing is true with uh, if we increase corn yields 10 percent that increases the amount of carbon that we're trapping 10 percent too so right bill gates was talking about that last night and uh, he talked a lot about the crops, and he was talking about livestock, but he didn't say anything about how much the crops sequestered and what impact that has. I think we can promote good management of crops in order to increase yields as a good climate impact factor as well. So, Right. Well, one of my concerns about carbon sequestration is if we pay a farmer on rented land to sequester carbon for five years and then 
the landowner lets the land go to somebody else who's using conventional or minimum tillage, do we lose oh, all yeah. that carbon? Yeah, and who pays for that? But, yeah, there's always that problem. But uh, right. I don't know how much land actually turns over in a year. Right. right. Do you have any feel for that? No, I don't. Most of what I'm aware of, they pretty much the same farmers are farming the same fields every year around here. Right. Well, just the example you use, the same guy's been doing yours for 25 years. Yeah. I went back and I pulled up an article we had done with you in 2011, and you point you pointed out something I thought was very interesting, that you said when you first went to work for PPI, you went out with Werner Nelson, and we're looking yeah. at bad fields and good fields, and he... He was saying, forget looking at the worst fields and look at the good ones, see what they're doing. Yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that Warner's right, very good. Uh, he was never interested in looking at bad fields, so <laughs> we know there's a problem there. But if we, if we look at a good field, we're going to make the best progress by improving the good fields. Right. That was Herman Warsaw's philosophy, too. He'd get, spend his time out in his good uh, high-yield plots and Right. Okay, what what is the limiting factor here and what can I do to fix it? Right. I've always tried to do that too when I go out and work with farmers. Take me to your best field and let's see what's going on. Sure, you get called as an agronomist, you get called to go out and solve problems and we need to do that too. That's certainly part of it. But I think we make our best progress in looking at what we're doing best and how we could do better. Well, I remember years ago, people saying that, uh, you know, the idea was, well, well, let's go out and fix our worst field. Well, the most progress could be made by boosting the yields on your best field. So, Harold, when did you retire from PPI? Uh, actually, in 2010. And what have you been doing since then? I've been doing some consulting work. Uh, I worked as a, an agronomist for like this uh Intel and Air Corporation. I'm not doing much for them now, but I worked for them in helping look at how we could use that uh, imagery. And we started out with drones and went to airplanes, and they're looking at satellites, drones, and airplanes all, but most of it they do with airplanes. Did some work. I was uh, executive director for the National Drainage Management Association. Mm -hmm. Did that for a couple of years. Well, some people say if you're going to no-till, the best investment you can make right off the top is get your drainage and tile lines yeah. fixed up. And uh, well, that's true in uh, in about anything, any management system you're going to do. That yeah. drainage is one of the things that we can do the easiest way to increase yields. Mm -hmm. Even though I spent most of my career in the fertility area, I recognize that drainage is something that most people can do the best in. Right. Farmers around here have done that. Uh, I had a neighbor that bought 160 acres down here. and 180, he put a new tile system in, and the other one he left as it was, and he increased his yields 100 bushel acre the first year. Wow. Wow. Right. He had a drainage problem that needed to be fixed. We'll wrap this up in a minute, but are we going to see any big breakthrough on fertility in the next few years? Oh, I don't know of any breakthrough. It's just a matter. I, I think uh, the industry is looking for a pretty good year this year. They had a decent year last year. That It started out kind of on the slow side, but as we got to the end of the year, the market, I think, went up pretty good. Right, right. And the most of what I've been hearing from the what the guys are saying is that they expect a pretty good year this year. So. Right. 
Hey, this has been great. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. All right. Yeah, it was great to work with you. Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank Blasmore answering a listener question. A reader some time ago asked me, uh, you know, this, this was a diehard no-tiller and he wasn't totally sold on strip-till, but he knew about it, but he, this is an old-timer and he remembered back about when we had ridge-till and he said to me, isn't strip-till today got a lot of the ideas that were around when we had ridge-till? And he's absolutely right. Controlled traffic. Ridge-tillers ran the tractor, the planter, and the combine tires in the same field pass in the field year after year to reduce compaction. Now we're getting some of that with strip-till with GPS. The next thing that ridge-tillers were doing was banding fertilizer in the ridges or close to it for maximum usage by corn and soybean plants. Well, strip-tillers started banding phosphorus, potassium, and micronutrients in the berms, whether they made them in the spring or in the fall. So we're there, it's kind of like ridge-till too. And then building ridges or berms, strip-tillers rely on those berms to help the heavy soils dry out and warm up faster in the spring. And whether they build them in the fall or spring, the berms allow the growers to ban and place nutrients where they can. One of the problems that ridge tillers had years years ago is they needed one or two late spring cultivations to build the ridges for planting on 10 to 11 months later. And this had to be done when they had livestock and at a time when hay should be baled. So that's one of the problems that kept ridge till from catching up. Another thing that the ridge tillers were doing were deep banding fertilizer and the strip tillers are doing that today too. And then the other thing that uh, ridge tillers were into was continuous corn. And they'd seen the benefits of moving heavy corn residue away from next year's road area. And uh, when they build berms, the strip tillers are doing the same thing. So what we see today with strip till kind of had its beginnings years ago with ridge till. Thanks to Frank Lesseter and Harold Reitz for today's conversation. And thanks to our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.